these can themselves inform and inspire and support our Vipassana, our awareness practice. The four states known as the Brahma Viharas or the divine abidings or best homes for the human heart are metta or loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And right from the beginning of the practice of loving kindness, which is often done as the base or the foundation practice, there's a very confusing instruction. That very first instruction from the Buddha is, sit comfortably. And this instruction or this direction seems to imply a level of kindness toward oneself and ease and gentleness that can be very confusing. It's easy for us to equate spiritual growth and spiritual transformation with struggle and with suffering. But it isn't necessarily suffering for its own sake that is transformative. What is radically transformative is opening to suffering. It's the spaciousness and the openness of mind or the compassion that comes as we hold suffering in a certain way. That opening, that quality of that opening is the quality both of awareness and of loving kindness. It's a quality of tremendous inclusivity. We include and we include and we include rather than withhold or reject or push away our experience. But it's confusing. As you know, either from doing the metta practice or from beginning with the compassion, now doing the sympathetic joy practice, in the classical structure of doing these practices, we go through various categories of beings. The principle of all of these practices is to do them in the easiest way possible. So loving kindness, for example, classically begins with ourselves because rightfully we should love ourselves, care for ourselves. We move on to the benefactor, that being who has helped us and been good to us or been kind to us. We move on from there to the friend, someone we like. Then we move on to a neutral person, somebody that we don't particularly like or dislike. Then we move on to a difficult person, known somewhat dramatically in the text as the enemy. And from there we move on to the extension of loving kindness to all beings everywhere or another way of saying it is the inclusion of all beings in our heart space of loving kindness. So when I went to Burma in uh, 1985, which is the place where I first intensively, in a guided, structured way, practiced the Brahma Viharas, I spent about six weeks of intensive retreat moving through the categories of loving-kindness, or metta, beginning with myself, spending a long time with the benefactor, and then the friend and the neutral person. And then finally, at the end of six weeks, I got to the enemy. And it was very funny because some great length of that early period, I kept feeling that I was cheating. I kept thinking, well, why am I sitting here in Burma sending metta to somebody who I already love, you know, somebody who's been good to me, somebody who's cared for me or helped me. It's not going to really count until I get to the enemy. And so I felt quite frustrated with my practice and I guess expressed something of that to my teacher, Upandita, because he looked at me as though I were just crazy and he said, why do you want to do it in the hardest way possible? It's meant to be done in the easiest way possible. 
because if we spend some time with the benefactor and some time with the friend, then we feel some confidence in the practice. We feel some confidence in our own capacity to love, to connect, to care. And slowly we make our way over to those that are more difficult for us. And so we say, even in sending metta to a difficult person, don't start with the one who has hurt you the most in this world. Start with someone you find mildly difficult. And you will find that there is an ability to include them over time. And then slowly we continue to expand those barriers or those lines that we have drawn. But we do it in the easiest way possible because that's the way it actually works. That's the way we can joyfully undertake the practice. And it's strange to begin to practice in that light. It goes against quite a bit of conditioning. So sit comfortably, not just physically, but emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. We sit comfortably. We find that sense of trust in our practice or confidence in ourselves and in the unfolding of our practice. We understand that we cannot control the arising of our experience. We cannot determine through an act of will what will come up in our bodies or in our minds. We can create the conditions so that we can relate to these experiences with spaciousness and with kindness. Much of this creating of conditions or laying the groundwork has to do with this principle that's known as gladdening the mind, which is very confusing. So for example, in sending metta to ourselves, we start by focusing on something good about ourselves, focusing on our own goodness, actually consciously calling to mind things that we have done or times we've been generous or something we've said or maybe a time when we actually told the truth when it would have been much easier to tell a lie, times when we helped somebody and we allow ourselves to rejoice in that memory. It's not for the purpose of developing conceit or being egotistical about it, but it is like seeing good-heartedness within us, acting through us. It's a potential for goodness, for connection that we all share. It seems to be much easier for us to focus on the mistakes that we've made and the damage that we've done in the times that we should never have opened our mouths and all of the ways that we've hurt other people. And this, of course, comes up quite often. But we do tend to fixate on that and it sometimes takes a conscious effort to expand our vision of who we are and what we're capable of. And so we consciously look for the good. I've often spoken of how when I was in Burma and I was given this instruction to look for the good first in myself and then in other people, my very first thought was, I'm not going to do that. You know, that's what stupid people do. And I thought, I don't even like people who are like that. You know, they just go around looking for the good in people. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but there I was. I was very far from home and in a, a rather enclosed environment, seeing Upandi to six days a week. And it was somewhat hard to avoid doing that without revealing that I was avoiding doing that. And so I did it. And much to my amazement, it actually worked. It worked in precisely the way it's meant to work. If we focus, whether thinking of ourselves or thinking of someone else, if we focus, if we fixate on the difficulties, then 
quite naturally will feel separate, will feel afraid, will feel resentful, will desire distance or separation. If we focus on the good, even if it's one tiny little glimmer of good in an ocean of difficulty, then what happens is that we feel some sense of connection. It doesn't lead to being silly. It doesn't lead to overlooking the very real harm that people may create in this world. It doesn't lead to forgetting to take care of ourselves or protect ourselves. It means that rather than looking at this other person or even ourselves from across this giant gulf of self and other, rather than creating the distant other, it's almost as though we're looking at life together with this person as though we're standing side by side. We don't pretend and we don't overlook all of the very real difficulty, but we don't feel so totally estranged, so totally apart. So we look for the good in someone. It's said that whether thinking of ourselves or thinking of somebody else, if we absolutely cannot find even that little glimmer of good, then there's something else we can do. Then what we focus on is what in the Buddhist teaching is talked about as the universal wish for happiness. The Buddha said that all beings everywhere want to be happy and that it is because of ignorance that we suffer, that we do the very things that cause suffering for ourselves or for others. But fundamentally, we all want to be happy. And this isn't something that's wrong and it isn't something that we need to feel tentative about or ashamed of or wary of because when we can combine that urge for happiness with wisdom rather than with ignorance, then it becomes like our homing instinct for freedom. Then we can go through many obstacles, many difficulties without feeling overcome, without feeling despairing. Everybody just wants to be happy and very few know how. But that urge itself is a beautiful thing. And we can find that it unites us. That no matter what the action or the mistaken action has taken place, we can join in, in a respectful appreciation of that basic motivation. When I was first practicing Vipassana meditation, I just assumed that it was going to take a very great deal of laborious, grim, severe effort to tame my mind and to develop concentration. In my very first meditation retreat, I became so incredibly frustrated with the persistent wanderings of my attention that in a, a kind of frenzy, I tormented myself with the idea that the next time that my attention wandered, I was just going to bang my head against the wall. <laughs> and fortunately for me, just then, the lunch bell rang. Now, retreats in those days were interesting because they were not held in silence. We would have certain silent days on retreat or certain silent periods on retreat, but there were other days when we would be talking. It was very chaotic, by the way. <laughs> so I was standing on the lunch line in my, my day of torment and it was one of those days when people were talking. I heard a conversation going on just behind me between these two people that I hadn't yet met. Joseph was one of them. Somebody asked Joseph how his morning of meditation had gone. 
And he replied with what seemed to be a very great lightness of spirit. Well, I couldn't really concentrate very well, but this afternoon may well be better. And I turned around in just great shock, and I looked at him and I thought, who are you? <laughs> you know, like, why don't you take this seriously? <laughs> that was when we met. But I learned as time went on that the conditions for developing concentration and mindfulness were very far from the kind of tormented struggle that I had engaged in. In fact, it was much closer to what he was saying on that lunch line. If we look at what in the Buddhist psychology is called the proximate cause or the, the nearest arising condition or that condition which most easily gives rise to something else, then we can understand this a little bit. Just as it said, metta most easily arises when we see the good in someone. It's not that easy if we're focusing on the bad in them. It said that the proximate cause or the most powerful conditioning factor for concentration is the state of happiness. Somehow straining to keep our attention in the present moment or keep it connecting, connected to an object, a chosen object, doesn't seem to be the primary cause or even a cause for the arising of concentration. The ground, the conditions that we seem to need to lay have to do with developing happiness in the mind. Happiness here doesn't mean pleasure. It doesn't mean having nice things happen to us. Because even though we all definitely enjoy nice things, there's a certain quiet or not so quiet anxiety about that enjoyment as we fear that the moment will pass. True happiness is more a state of confidence. It's a state of mind where we understand that there is spaciousness, there's peace, or there's calm, not because of what is happening, but with whatever is happening. I know Joseph told you the story about our being at Gethsemane with the Dalai Lama when he gave his hysterical uh, speech about how he'd been offered cheese that day but really wished he'd been offered cake. And he laughed and laughed and laughed, you know, because he was expressing the fact that he'd really wanted something and hadn't gotten it. And what was so amazing for me about that moment was that it was so clear that his happiness was not tied into getting some fruitcake. His happiness was in his ability to laugh at himself for having that desire and his amazing unself-conscious expression of desire in, in front of religious dignitaries of two different traditions and in front of television cameras, which were filming him for a news show. <laughs> you know, the happiness is not contained in the object, because if it were, it would be very sad. It would be very fragile. We would have it sometimes when people had the uh, sensitivity to offer us cake instead of cheese. <laughs> And we wouldn't have it when they didn't. Or we would have that kind of happiness when the sensations arising in our bodies and the states arising in our minds were pleasing to us. And we wouldn't have it when they were not. So happiness means not what is happening, but developing confidence in our capacity to be with what is happening or to connect, or to include, or to have loving-kindness. 
The difference between Joseph and I in that day, in that lunch line, was that at that point he had been practicing for about four years and I had been practicing for about three days. And over time, one's perspective definitely broadens. You see that what we perceive as ups and downs in practice are really kind of a a cyclical process that just defies analysis, but actually blossoms with acceptance. Mostly, we don't have a clue. We don't know why one thing follows the next, We don't know why getting concentrated and peaceful leads to these explosions of turmoil and suffering, but they do. It doesn't necessarily make sense to us. I found that as I practiced longer, what happened was that I developed the ability to more accept the natural seeming ups and downs of changing experience. And that this acceptance, this ability to accept, was very connected to my sense of self-respect. That when my self-respect was stronger, I could go through difficult periods in practice without being so disheartened. Because every difficulty no longer reflected a lack of self-worth to me. And I could go through pleasant periods in practice without this feeling like I needed to get a death grip on them for fear that they would change and leave me feeling once again badly about myself. That quality of self-respect seems a key component in the feeling of happiness that is the proximate cause of concentration. It also became clear that my level of self-respect was rooted in how I behaved in life outside of the meditation cushion. We find this truth not only in our own practice, but we find it in the classical Buddhist teachings as well. In classical texts such as the Vasudhimaga or the Path of Purification, the teachings are often presented in a causal sequence just to give us a sense of how one state of mind can create the conditions for the arising of the next. And there's a wonderful text within that book which shows some of this role of self-respect and happiness. The section opens with the phrase, Morality is considered the foundation for the development of restraint. In the Buddhist teaching, morality doesn't mean a forced or a kind of puritanical abiding by rules. It means living with intentions that reflect our love and compassion for ourselves as well as for others. As George Santayana once said, Morality is the desire to lessen suffering in the world. When we live in harmony with how connected we actually are, we avoid doing so many harmful actions. And that leads to the next mental condition. The phrase is, restraint is the foundation for the development of the absence of remorse. When we have a momentary impulse to do something or say something that would cause harm in some way and we don't actually get driven by it, then we have the opportunity to see through it. We can see the impermanence. We can see the transparency of the desire or the fear or the anger, whatever it was that rose initially. And having not carried it out, having not gone ahead and done whatever, we also don't have to face the guilt and the fear of discovery and all of the complexity and confusion that come when we just forget. We forget that what we do and what we say actually makes a difference, that it has a kind of potency. 
So the positive condition that comes from that quality of restraint is called gladdening. The text says, the absence of remorse is the foundation for the development of gladdening. Gladdening is that state of lightness and ease that we find deepening in our lives the more we care for ourselves and the more we care for others. Because we experience a genuine connection to others and an understanding that what we do does matter, we let go of more and more actions that are hurtful. And it's not a big renunciation. It's more like a disenchantment. We're not so pulled, we're not so interested. And because we do less, that actually keeps us from feeling more separate, then we don't feel so lonely and we don't feel so apart. So that gladdening is the foundation for the development of happiness. This is the happiness of peace and of composure. This is the happiness that isn't going to fracture as conditions change, as people behave in disappointing ways, as we don't get what we want. This is the happiness that is based on our sense of connection, on knowing that we are acting as best we can from our deepest values, from having a sense of integrity and of having self-respect. And then the sequence goes on talking about how this quality of happiness is the basis for the development of tranquility. Rather than the kind of worry and guilt and turbulence and agitation which so naturally comes up when our lives are confused and we are hurting people or hurting ourselves, the mind can be quieter. We don't have to disentangle so much or try to figure out how we can make amends and how we can make things better. Things are just more straightforward and they're simpler. This tranquility is said to be the foundation for the development of concentration. Because of this concentration, there is the development of correct knowledge and vision. It means that we can have our minds, have our attention stable with what's going on rather than running off all of the time. And because of that stability of attention, we can actually see what's going on. We can see more clearly. There's a strength of mind or a wholeness of our being, a fullness of our being that is present. That wholeness, that presence, leads to a very personal and intimate vision of the truth. It leads to a great trust in our own experience of the truth. And the sequence goes on all the way through these different steps to deliverance or enlightenment, freedom from suffering. So we begin that simply. We just dedicate our intentions to non-harming, to love and to compassion, and we're led to the prospect of actual enlightenment, what is known sometimes as the sure heart's release. We're led to a silent, wordless understanding of the truth that's so powerful that there's no turning back from it. The sequence is as natural and simple as the movement of the wind. When we see concentration in this light, when we see happiness in this light, then it becomes an integral part of our spiritual life. We might think of happiness as an end in itself, you know, perhaps as one of the, the fruits or the products of meditation, and of course it is definitely that but it's also a state of being we can have right now by inclining the mind toward goodness, toward spaciousness, toward connection. We can have that state of happiness right now by living in a way that affirms our love and care and respect for ourselves 
as well as for others. Which brings me to the second Brahma-vihara, or that state of compassion, the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. A deeper exploration of the state of compassion actually challenges a lot of our ideas about suffering, a lot of our ideas about experience. Something that becomes clearer all the time in undertaking a spiritual life is that the path to freedom is not about acquiring exciting experiences. Because if it were, we would simply be replacing the kind of desire that we have in the ordinary sense, you know, I wish I had a new car, I wish I had a new house, with a spiritual longing like, I wish I could levitate, or I wish something so exciting would happen to me that when I went home from this retreat, everyone would just know right away that I'd been transformed. But ultimately, our process, our practice, is about the purification of our hearts so that we can recognize our oneness, so that we can be at ease in our lives. Then we relate naturally without a kind of contrived sense of, well, now I'm a spiritual person, or now I'm a Buddhist, and therefore I'm very loving. Or I'm now a spiritual person, and therefore I'm very compassionate. It's very tempting, actually, to undertake our practice with the same kinds of motivations that may have driven us all our lives. But in the very process of seeing clearly, in the very process of developing greater compassion, not seeing the hindrances or the defilements that arise in our minds as bad or wrong, but rather seeing them as suffering, in that process itself, we come to a greater purification of motivation. Because we see that our practice is not about having or getting something. It is about being compassionate toward ourselves and toward others. It's not about assuming a new spiritual identity or a new self-image. It's about learning the naturalness of compassion that comes out of what we see and what we understand. Compassion is like a mirror that we can look into in terms of our motivation and the purification of our motivation. Because if we are practicing for the sake of having and getting and achieving experiences, surely we will often be disappointed. If the Dalai Lama had problems at Gethsemane because he wasn't offered fruitcake, just think about how we are every day here when we are not levitating, when we're not seeing white light, when we're not filled with bliss, perhaps. And yet the acquisition of experience is beside the point. The relationship to experience is our freedom. And I want to talk some about sympathetic joy, which we're practicing right now, because it is such a rare and beautiful quality and is very connected to the appreciation of happiness, to sitting comfortably. It is a very rare quality and quite beautiful. We've probably all had different experiences where something good has happened for us, or we've gotten something, or some act of good fortune has befallen us. And we know how it feels when someone else is actually happy for us, and how it feels when this other person really resents our happiness or getting what we want. It's such an amazing feeling to, to, to sense the support and the care and the joy that other people can have for our happiness. 
The word in Pali is mudita, which means to have a sense of gladness. And this practice challenges a lot of our assumptions about happiness, about aloneness, about having, about loss. It is a practice of rejoicing. And so first, we really have to open to our own happiness. Upandita once used this example. He said, imagine the difference between first giving a gift to a small child who is so open, they just delightedly take that gift and they run around the room and they, they just shout with their happiness. Now imagine the difference between that and giving a gift to a rather overly sophisticated, jaded person who takes the gift and nods a little distantly and says, oh, thank you. It's very kind. And he said, it's better to be like that little child. Be happy. You don't have to hold in your happiness. Just be happy. And in quoting the Buddha, he went on to say that rapture is the gateway to Nibbana. And we do learn in practice to take delight, to actively rejoice, to have joy strongly, even passionately in our openings, in our understanding. Not in the sense of attachment, because as experiences they will always change, but through our own knowledge, we're seeing the capacity of a human being to understand, to connect, to care, to open, to love. And it's not just us, it's everybody. If we really rejoice in the potential that we all share, then there's a kind of compassion that comes from that as well. Normally we talk about compassion coming from the acknowledgement and the tenderness and a sense of sufficiency in facing suffering, and it certainly does. But there's also a quality of compassion that comes from actively taking delight in feeling whole, in feeling sufficient. There's a quality of generosity that comes from a sense of abundance that just does not appear if we're afraid of losing what we have, if we're wondering if we have enough, if we're clutching and we're holding on or trying to hide what we've got. When we feel the joy that can be in the moment, regardless of our experience, then there's a natural kind of generosity that comes with that. We just wish so much that others can experience this. And having practiced in some way to establish this ability to rejoice in our own happiness, we can practice taking delight in the happiness of others rather than feeling threatened or diminished in some way, as if someone else's happiness is going to take something away from us. When sympathetic joy develops, we actually can feel happy when others are happy. The way the Dalai Lama put it was to say that there's so many other people in this world it simply makes sense to make their happiness equivalent to your own. Because then our chances of delight are enhanced by about 5.5 billion to one. <laughs> he said, these are very good odds. <laughs> Often we look at the happiness of others and we do feel afraid or we feel threatened. We have the sense that Somehow happiness is a very limited commodity in this world. And if someone else has too much, it's not going to be that there's enough left for us. But when we actually do the practice of sympathetic joy over time, we discover that 
the happiness of others is our own happiness. It's not a threat to our happiness. And so we continue to acknowledge our connection to one another. And it's a difficult practice. It's often said that of the four, it is the most difficult. And just imagine being in a room where somebody that you don't like is being praised for something. It's very difficult to imagine actually feeling happy for them. And yet it's possible, and it's a tremendous flowering of our ability to care and not to be afraid. It's difficult for many kinds of conditioning that we have. It's difficult because we tend to be lost in judgment, which is not the same as discernment. There is a certain element of wise discernment that's always necessary if we feel that somebody is becoming very happy because they're engaged in a lot of harmful activity and they're making a lot of money from it, we may not practice sympathetic joy if they're really hurting people. But sometimes there's a quality of judgment that has nothing to do with wise discernment. It more has to do with holding on to our opinions about how other people should live and what they should want and how they should behave. I had the experience once, um, which I mentioned in my book, it was very funny, of uh, giving somebody some advice about something, which turned out completely wrong. They were about to go on a vacation someplace, and I said, well, don't, do, don't go there. You know, it, it won't be very good, and there are all of these unappealing facets to it, and too expensive and you know you won't have fun and the climate's terrible and all these things and and they went anyway and they had a really wonderful time so then the question is what is most important rejoicing in their happiness or bitterly regretting the fact that I was wrong so that's one thing is the quality of judgment which can keep us from that free sense of connection there's also the quality of comparison, feeling that we don't quite know who we are unless we are comparing ourselves to somebody else. And we can't quite feel into our own state of happiness or self-respect or sufficiency without comparing ourselves to somebody else. And that is a state of tremendous restlessness. Because just imagine how endless it actually is. If you're sitting in this room, first of all, we can't compare truthful criteria of happiness because we can't tell. All we can compare are some seem seemingly objective experiences that may have nothing to do with anything. So the tendency in a situation like this would be to compare something like how long somebody can sit without moving, which might mean nothing. But it's very easy to imagine coming into this room at the end of a walking period and sitting down and noticing that halfway through the following sitting, somebody next to you moves and you think, oh good. They moved. I'm really a much better meditator than they are. I'm, I'm really glad they moved. But then this fear takes hold and you think, but wait a minute, they were actually sitting here when I came in from the walking. Maybe they sat through the sitting and the walking <laughs> and they're only now moving in the middle of this next sitting. I'm really not nearly as good as they are. And perhaps having mentally positioned yourself in reference to every single person here, you then have to watch to see if anybody new comes, you know, so that you can, you can ascertain your status in regards to them. It's endless. And there is no rest inherent in that state. It's the kind of mind state that 
no matter what conclusion we actually draw about ourselves, we suffer from the very restlessness or agitation of the state itself. Sympathetic joy is difficult because of fear, which is the basis of the judgment, it's the basis of the comparison. And yet the very practice of a quality like sympathetic joy allows us to understand our own sufficiency, our own abundance, our own connection. And so in some way we understand our freedom. It was very interesting at that conference at Gethsemane because somehow no matter what the assigned topic was of any session, we all ended up talking about anger. And every once in a while somebody either from the Buddhist side or the Christian side of things, would get up and say, that's enough about anger. Let's talk about something else. But somehow, it all kept coming back to anger. And all I could think of as a reason for that was that in some ways, anger is like the language of our separateness. It's the language of our separation. And that in trying to explore the boundaries, trying to understand each other, we kept coming up against an urge toward connection and feelings of separation. And so we went round and round and round that one issue. But the actual practice of loving kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity, it's like it gives us another language it gives us a way of reaching and expressing a different place that is a natural part of our own being. And then the last of the Brahmaviharas is the state of equanimity. It's that state of spacious stillness where we're not indifferent and we're not pulled away. We are quite connected to our own experience or connected to the experience of others but without our habitual reactions of running toward what's pleasant as though we would be able to keep it forever and without pulling away from what's unpleasant as though it were going to really damage our sense of awareness, our sense of compassion, our sense of who we are. And it is the stability and the openness of equanimity that allows the other states, like metta and compassion and sympathetic joy, to grow boundless. Because without it, in metta, for example, we might offer our friendship and our care only as long as our offering was acknowledged and appreciated or appreciated fully. We might only offer it as long as someone responded in kind. And we would offer compassion to ourselves, compassion to others, only when we felt enough courage to look at the suffering. We would offer sympathetic joy only in those rare moments when we didn't feel threatened or we didn't feel afraid or we didn't feel envious. When we cultivate equanimity either through the equanimity practice as a Brahma Vihara or simply through mindfulness, we discover this tremendous capacity to connect and to be present. We discover a tremendous capacity for happiness regardless of what's going on. We can move away from our fixation about the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of our experience and settle into a tremendous appreciation for the actual qualities or characteristics of awareness. Sometimes we say in teaching, 
sit like a mountain. We say sit with a sense of self-respect and strength and dignity. Be steadfast and be natural. Be natural and at ease in your awareness. No matter how many winds are blowing, no matter how many clouds are swirling around, no matter how many lions or creatures may be prowling around, connect to everything, be intimate with everything, and sit like a mountain. It's not an image of pulling away or trying to reject or hold on to anything. We connect to everything with the power of equanimity. We feel everything without exception. And we relate to it through our own strength of awareness. So all of these together, the qualities of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity form the continual purification of our motivation for practice. They form the continual balancing of our efforts in practice so that our practice does not become or remain a practice of acquisition or of clinging or of rejection or of aloneness. It continually moves in the direction of a, compa a compassionate and caring and connected practice as we can embrace and include and incorporate all aspects of our own experience. And that becomes the basis for being able to embrace and include and incorporate the experiences of all others. So let's sit together for a few minutes. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.